This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome, everyone, once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian radio show where we give you the evidence to know for certain that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks, and with me in the studio is author and apologist Kirk Hastings. Welcome to the studio, Kirk. Hi, Keith. Thank you. Dr. Mike is away. He is off today, feeling a little under the weather, so... We will continue on without him, but get well soon, Mike. Evidence for Faith is sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey, heard exclusively on WIBG, Ocean City. And you can find our podcast on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Also on iTunes, just Look for the podcast listing and type in Evidence for Faith in the search box, and you will find us on iTunes so you can download podcasts of previous shows. So today's topic is going to be on superstition, philosophy, and religion. We're going to be pursuing another chapter in Kirk Hastings' book, What is Truth? Kirk, tell us a little bit about your book for those who are not familiar with it. Okay, it's called What is Truth, and the uh, subtitle is A Handbook for Separating Fact from Fiction in a Propaganda-Filled World. I like that. Yes, I kind of like it myself. Yeah, <laughs> propaganda-filled world, which is certainly true. Uh, the, the main thrust of my book is trying to present some of the uh, scientific and uh, archaeological evidence for the Christian faith so that uh, you can answer people when they say, well, you just believe that and you don't have any real rational basis for it. Well, actually, there is a rational basis for it, and mm-hmm. I try to present that in an easily readable form in this little book so that either Christians who are trying to defend their faith have some ammunition or people that are thinking about embracing the Christian faith can find out what it's all based on and what it's all about. Excellent. Which is sort of the purpose of this radio show, too. So yes, uh, too very close. Hand in glove. Where can people get your book? Uh, probably uh, for local people, the best place would be the Christian Literature Center on Tilton Road in uh, Northfield. has copies of it. Okay. And you can order it really from any bookstore, can place okay. a special order for you if they don't have it on their shelf. All right. Very good. I've got a couple of quotes because I thought they fit into the topic today, and we'll also just so people know, we'll be reading a couple of letters that we got, some emails that we got from some atheists this week. So we'll be responding to some of their questions and to their claims. And Letters, we get letters? That's right, yep. <laughs> and uh, it fits in with the topic of the chapter that we'll be covering in your book. So I've got a couple of quotes here that also fit in. This one, I, I get these quotes from thinkchristianly.org. It's a great website that sends little things to think about each day about the Christian worldview, and some of the things they send are quotes, and some of the quotes are from atheists. So this one is from Marvin Minsky at MIT. He says, quote, the physical world provides no room for freedom of will, yet that concept is essential to our models of the mental realm. Too much, too much of our psychology is based on it for us to ever give it up. And so we're virtually forced to maintain that belief, even though we know it's false. So he's claiming that there is no such thing as freedom of will, hmm. that you are simply the result of chemical reactions in your brain. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you think and feel is all merely the response of chemicals in your brain. You don't actually have free will. You don't. There isn't any actual you behind the you. Hmm. 
the chemical makeup. So that's uh, from Marvin Minsky, and we'll be uh, looking at this. It's kind of an absurd view. One of the letters that we got from one of the atheists talks about our claim that atheism is absurd, and this is an example of that absurdity, that you are forced then to believe that you don't even have free will, even though everything in your daily experience tells you that you do. That The first thing that crosses my mind when you say that would be that everyone that rebels against anything is not fitting into this definition. For instance, okay. a soldier that gives his life on the battlefield for his country or what he believes in, according to him, he had no free will to choose to do that. That's correct. But they do. Well, you know, every instinct we have is for self-preservation, and yet for somebody to deliberately give their life up for someone else, then we shouldn't be able to do that. That's right. If we are Ever. only the product of our genes, our chemistry, we would have to just follow right. what they say, which is, according to them, it's survival. Like the instinct of an animal. He can't do other than his instinct tells him to do. Right, right. So, yeah. It's very, that's just one example. That's right. So, yet people, and I'm sure listeners, have that feeling that, no, uh, that's not the case. I know that I actually do take free will actions. When someone says, please raise your hand, I will either raise my hand or not raise my hand, depending on what I choose to do. Or how stubborn you are. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Here's another quote that I thought was apropos for today's topic, and this is from Anthony Flew. Do you know who Anthony Flew is? No, I don't. Anthony Flew was probably one of the most famous atheists in the world. He wrote dozens and dozens of books against theism for atheism, hmm. including guides on how to to uh, debate theists for written for the atheist. A intellectual and academic, a philosopher, very highly respected on both sides, who became a Christian. So he didn't invent the fireplace flu or anything like no, that? No, nothing like that. No, okay. that's not what he's famous for. He's famous for being an atheist. And it was quite a uh, media event when he did become a, a theist. So here's what— Oh, he, he flipped, huh? Anthony flew flipped, yes. <laughs> he flew the atheist coop. And now he— Interesting. Yes. And now he—here's a quote from him. I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this? Given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century, the short answer is this. This is the world picture, as I see it, that has emerged from modern science. Close quote. Wow. Yeah, very strong, isn't it? Yes. And very appropriate for the show today, I think. Very appropriate. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. We are talking with author Kirk Hastings. So, Kirk, let's get into your—this is Chapter 9 of your book— called Superstition, Philosophy, and Religion. Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of this chapter? Why does it fit where it does in this book? Well, the reason I put this chapter in here is it follows most of the previous chapters where I try to lay a scientific groundwork for uh, believing in Christianity and theism. All right. Yeah, you and covered then, things like, does God exist? Right. Uh, has the universe existed forever, you right. know, t things like that. Then right. I went into some of the problems with the Darwinian evolution point of view, which okay. says that there is no God and everything kind of created itself. All right. And I just felt that it was a, uh, a natural jump to then write a chapter dealing with these three things, superstition, philosophy, and religion, and to define each one of them so that the reader would not be confused as to which one is which. Okay. People often mix or match these three things together without realizing it, but there is a distinct difference between these three types of belief. 
Okay. All right. We'll get into that, how they confuse those things. But I notice you start out with a quote by Colin Patterson, who was a paleontologist at the British Museum. Yes. So a very highly respected source. And what does his, what's his quote say? Well, he made this quote in 1982 where he says, How the dinosaurs became extinct, how the mammals evolved, where man came from, these things seem to me to be little more than storytelling. Wow. Now, that's wow. quite a telling quote coming from a uh, senior paleontologist from the a major museum. Right, right. Yes. So he's claiming that all that we know about dinosaurs and the fossil record amount to nothing more than storytelling. Yes. Yeah. Imaginative storytelling, not really based on all that much objective evidence. You know, this is reflected in the quote I heard from a professor at the University of Penn. Not long ago, I went to one of his discussions, and he was talking, he's a mathematical biologist, and he uses math to study biology and evolution. And one of the things that he's been quoted as saying is that if w scientists suddenly discovered that the Earth was not actually uh, four um, billion years old, if it would turned out that it was only four million years old, that that would not be a problem for evolution because they'd simply shrink up all the dates and shrink up all the, the speed of the evolutionary process. Sure. Yeah, now that was a really popular quote with a lot of creation scientists, and it made him kind of mad that they would jump on that. But he was really revealing a, a secret about uh, the science of the past, and that is that a lot of it is just uh, dependent on what they, their storytelling ability. Mm -hmm. And if the facts change, they'll just change the story. Well, this kind of relates to what Dr. Mike and I were talking about last week, where I brought up the fact that evolution is such a broad uh, theory that you can fit almost anything into it, right. which really, in the end, makes it kind of useless. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, I wanted uh, to respond. I was listening to that show when I was in Minneapolis, and I wanted to add something to that, what you're talking about, just how significant that is. I don't think... When people hear a statement like that, I don't think they really understand just how significant and how true that really is. Um, this is actually why uh, Freudianism, Freudian psychology, has fallen into disrepute and fallen out of favor with psych psycho uh, psychologists because Freudian theory explains too much. It can explain anything, any kind of behavior mm -hmm. goes back to this Oedipus complex that you're secretly in love with your mother. And <laughs> so, so when asked, why, did the, why does this child uh, hate his mother? The answer is, well, he's secretly in love with her and he's, resist, he's rebuffed by her, so he hates her. Well, okay, then you know, now let's explain why does this child love his mother so much? Well, because of the Oedipus complex, he loves his mother. Right. So, so in other words, it can explain anything, no matter what you say. And in a sense, that that is explaining too much. There's, there's never any contradiction. There's never anything that could possibly rule it out. Right. It's not disprovable. Not disprovable. In any way. So Freudianism was not disprovable. So because no matter any behavior, even if they were opposite behaviors, and that's the key, even if they're opposite behaviors, they could still be explained by the same cause. So, um, you know, and this is where the problem with evolution is. It explains too much. Why do men kill each other? Well, because of the survival instinct. Why do men die to save each other? Well, because of the survival instinct. You can see that it explains contradictory things coming mm -hmm. from the same cause. Therefore, we know it's not true. 
So I hope everyone gets that. It's a little hard to follow, but really it is why some theories can survive and some theories cannot don't survive. If they're too broad, if they explain contradictory things with the same answer, you know they're not true. And every conceivable observation can be fitted into it. Therefore, in the end, it's really useless. It doesn't explain anything. Correct. That's correct. All right, so let's move into this chapter a, a little bit more. You talk about the power of storytelling, right? If, mm -hmm. How are we to distinguish? So talk about that. Talk about the power of storytelling. Well, I start the chapter off by uh, noting the fact of how uh, much of a power our major media is mm -hmm. today. Movies, TV shows, popular songs, whatever. These are all forms of entertainment based on storytelling, mm -hmm. fictional storytelling. And it's our media has become extremely... Uh, all invasive in our society in the past 50 years or so, probably since the invention of television really boosted it. Um, and the point that I try to make in this chapter is that it's a almost a human instinct to want to tell interesting stories. Mm -hmm. You know, even in, in uh, early man would sit around the campfire and tell stories and tell ghost stories and whatever to entertain you know, the right. other people. And we still, in effect, we do it. It's a little more sophisticated today, but we're really doing the same thing when we go to a movie or we watch a TV show or whatever. We're being entertained by an interesting story. But all too often in our modern media, they blur the distinction between what is a story and what is real. Okay. And especially with modern movie making with the incredible special effects and the computer generated images and everything that they can make now, it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish between what is real and what is just a story. Right. But yeah. we need to do that because it's very important for you to understand what reality is. You have to know where that line is. Yeah. I, I was always intrigued when I was taught about evolution as a child even when the, during the time when I was an agnostic atheist, I was always intrigued about the storytelling abilities of people that they used when they were trying to explain evolution. Mm -hmm. So they would, you know, create a situation. Imagine a a fish stuck in a puddle, and the and the puddle of water is starting to dry up. So the fish in order to survive, has to cross a small land bridge. And its fins are a little bit harder, a little bit tougher than the other fish in that pond. So it's able to wiggle itself and use its fins and get across that land bridge into the other puddle and therefore survive. And, and who hasn't seen a cartoon, you know, of a little fish with these little legs crawling along the ground? But we have no fossil of such a creature. There's never been any objective scientific evidence that such a creature ever existed. But I'm sure that almost everybody, when they heard you say that, got this little picture in their head of this little fish with these little legs crawling along the ground. Well, exactly. And it, it always occurred to me that storytelling is something that liars do. Okay? If I say I'm late for the show, you know, I, I come walking in five minutes late and, and I I tell you Wow, I'm so sorry that I'm late here. You know, listen to what happened to me. You will never believe this. While I was driving <laughs> along, this guy swerved in front of me, and I had to pull over far to the shoulder of the road, and I hit a piece of metal. It stuck in my tire and blew it out. Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. So then I had to get out my, you know, and if I go into, in the, into this long, detailed story, it makes it more believable. Yeah. Now, if I just come in, the more in, detail you add to it, the more believable it sounds. Exactly right. So, but if, that still doesn't make it true. Right. That's exactly right. If I'd have just come in the room five minutes late and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I had a flat tire," uh, you'd be a little, uh, "Yeah, sure, right, okay, yeah, yeah you, yeah, you had a flat tire, okay, sure." But if I add this incredible level of complexity and talk to you about what happened and the people that I met and the conversations that they mm -hmm. had, all of a sudden. The implausible 
becomes plausible. Exactly right. Yes. So so that was one of the things that I always thought about, you know, even though it, you know, the, the th- I believed in the theory of evolution, at the same time, I recognize that a lot of it is just storytelling. And well, is that's what Dr. Colin Patterson is implying by his quote, is that it's very easy for imaginative, intelligent people to come up with a very plausible-sounding story about evolution without any solid objective evidence to base that story on. Right. Now, you then proceed to go into the topic of deception and that we can be deceived and that people are being deceived in this way. Yes, a lot. Uh, Superstition, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines superstition as a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, fear of the unknown, or trust in magic or chance. Okay. But there are many people today who firmly believe in this, even though really if you press them for evidence of its reality, they, they, for the most part, can't supply you with anything. Or they'll go into a long, elaborate story like you just did. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's still superstition. It's still something that's not scientifically, objectively real. Now, we're in an interesting... Um, just a position now then because of course the atheist listening will say oh well you Christian that's what I'm talking about I'm talking about superstition I'm talking about you believing and using that definition out of ignorance out of fear believing in magic right that would be your so-called miracles and or chance right so that's so, how they see belief in in God as they see it as a superstition. Superstition, right. And, and there are many beliefs of different gods that are superstition and are based on superstitious mm-hmm. beliefs. But that doesn't necessarily mean that historic Christianity is. True. Just because some religions may be based on superstition doesn't mean they all are. Right, right. Well, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about superstition, philosophy, and religion. Another good example of what we're talking about is astrology. There are many people who are firm believers in astrology and that you can predict, basically predict the future through this based on the movements of planets and stars and whatever. All right. But if you try to pin this down as far as, well, what evidence do you have to believe this? Mm-hmm. Uh, the evidence is very skimpy, if not non-existent. So what can the Christian do with this definition of superstition? Can we turn that back on to the atheist, on to the naturalist, on to the evolutionist, and say, uh, no, actually, you are superstitious? Well, when when an atheist comes to you and says, well, your belief in God is superstition, mm-hmm. I believe it's our responsibility to know why we believe what we believe well enough to be able to answer that question with evidence. With evidence. For what we believe, which right. means to show this that it's isn't not just superstition, exactly. it's based on something. That's right. In fact, I think Which is that what this radio show tries to do. Exactly. And I, I think, actually, you can turn that back on them and show that uh, superstition is based on ignorance, right? Okay, so the atheist is ignorant of the findings of microbiology and cosmology that show the evidence for God. It's based on fear, fear of this God, this unknown, what he's going to say to them, how he's going to judge them, how he's going to try to run their life. It's based on magic, the magic of things like spontaneous generation of life. Or Darwinian evolution itself, which exactly. is, it really is a form of magic. It's saying that one species can change into another. We don't know how it did it, but it did it somehow. Well, the changing, one species changing into another doesn't bother me, but the fact that one species can be uh, less complicated and suddenly become more complicated, more uh, information-based, and be more complex... How does that happen? If that That's could happen, basically creating something out of nothing. Right. You could, if that were possible, you could have. It would be possible to have perpetual motion machines. Yes. So that w- that's the magic of 
evolution of atheism and superstition is based on chance. Well, gee, what do you think evolution is? It's based on random chance. Right. So um, so I think you can turn that around back on them. So the, the real issue then is we're caught between these two claims. The atheist claims that, no, you guys, you Christians, you're the superstitious ones, and we actually turn that around and say, no, uh, the reality is that the atheist is the superstitious one. I, so there how, are, is there, some, are we just stuck there? Is there any in, a pass to that? Well, personally, I, I'm more willing to, ish, to listen to uh, agnostics and atheists um, to their arguments if they show me that they have some evidence that they've looked at the other side of the argument as well as their own side. For instance, if an atheist were to say, well, yes, I've, I've read uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, okay. and I find this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem with it. Now, that's an argument I can listen to, uh-huh. but most atheists will not be able to do that because they've only read material that supports their point of view, and they haven't read much or anything supporting the other side. Right. So they'll make this claim that there is no evidence. In fact, uh, one of the letters that we'll be reading from an atheist listener makes that claim. But he, they make that claim out of ignorance of what the evidence on the other side is, because they haven't made any effort to look at it. Well, what's funny is he even does say he's listened to four episodes of our podcasts. And well, then I applaud he claims, him for, be, for being open-minded enough to do that. And that's, yeah, absolutely. But then he goes around and makes the claim that there is no evidence, which I find odd because then what did he listen to? Um, four hours of dead air, right? Did that's he listen? a good question. Yeah. So, so uh, and, you know, it's something that claim that there is no evidence, that is something that we have to be careful ourselves that we don't make, that we don't claim that there is no evidence for the other side. Because almost always there is evidence. There's it some might not, evidence, yeah, yes. Yeah, it might not be very good evidence, but people don't believe things for no reason. Right. If you really drill down, if somebody says that they believe something, and no matter how strange it sounds, even if it is some kind of superstitious idea like breaking a mirror will give you seven years of bad luck, they don't believe it for no reason. They believe it for some reason. Maybe it's only because their Aunt uh, Gertrude told them that. And or they may have broken a mirror and a bunch of things went wrong after that, and exactly. they relate the two. That's exactly right. So it might be their own experience. It might be uh, some authority told them. Sure. So An authority uh, that they trust. That's right. And so, in a sense, those are kinds of evidence. Um, you know, and that's, you know, people believe things for reasons. They believe it for evidence. So we have to be careful not to say that there is no evidence. What we can say is that... As far as I can tell, there's no evidence. Or or you could say, I don't think there's enough evidence to accept this. Exactly right. There's a, there's a big flaw in saying there's no evidence, and, it, and it's the same logical flaw that is there when you say there is no God. To say there is no God, or to say there is no evidence to support God, then what you're doing is you're making a what's called a universal negative. Right. All right? You're claiming something negative about the universe. In order to do that, you essentially have to be omniscient. You have to know everything, every fact, every truth, in order to say there is no evidence at all. So, right. so really, that is an irrational statement. To I'm more likely to, to listen to an agnostic than an atheist for that very reason, because an agno- agnostic uh-huh. will at least say, well, I'm not sure. You well, know, I don't know. I don't know. But an atheist who will say definitively there is no God, right. that is very difficult to swallow. Can you imagine? Because he would have to know every corner of the universe to be able to make that statement. That's right. That's right. And so it's irrational. It's actually irrational to say there is no evidence for anything, even for right. that there's no evidence against God, that there is no evidence for God. Either way, it's irrational because you simply can't know that. Human beings cannot know that. 
And so you're asserting something c- that could never be known. Right. Imagine here, ta- we're talking about storytelling. Imagine this story. Imagine that you are a defendant in a court case, and you have the prosecution goes first, and so he presents all the evidence against you that's that's being claimed that you committed this crime, and he presents uh, quotes taken out of context. He create he he has audio tape that's been sliced up. He has videotape. He has um, witnesses that have muddled their their testimony, but it all makes you look guilty. Right. So you're there in the courtroom, and then the the ju- it's time for the defense lawyer to get up, and the judge says to the jury, you know, I've looked at all the evidence here, and there's no evidence to support that this man is innocent, so you guys go ahead and make your decision. Go into the back room and make your decision. Mm-hmm. That's uh, called circumstantial evidence, incidentally. The, what the, maybe what the prosecution presented. But regardless, don't you think it'd be a little unfair that the judge just deemed, hey, there's no evidence to support. Even if you thought, even if he thought there wasn't any evidence, he still ought to allow the defense attorney to speak. Hello? Don't you just love those old TV shows that just brought to my mind, like an old Western or something, where for an hour you're watching this show where... Uh, somebody contends that so-and-so killed so-and-so, you know, whatever. And the whole episode is based on that idea. Right. And you're thoroughly convinced of this. But then at the very end of the episode, the dead guy walks in the door, and it's like everything you just watched for the past hour and were totally convinced of is now out the window. That's right. And you you didn't realize you were being led along by circumstantial evidence, by storytelling. Right, by good storytelling. Exactly right. You know, a lawyer can use good storytelling just as well as a Hollywood scriptwriter can. Well, in fact, that's almost their purpose. I've been on juries myself when I've, and by the time I finished hearing all the prosecution, I said, yeah, the guy is guilty. Absolutely. Yeah. But then along, com- along comes the defense attorney. Oh, and gives now. you an equally convincing story. Exactly. Now, oh, now I understand what's going on. Yep. You know, so, so you do have to be careful. And that's one of the points of this chapter is being careful to examine the evidence yourself, well, not just believing what other people say, but examining it yourself. Well, actually, what we're really talking about here and what I lead into in this chapter is uh, I break it down to calling it empiricism versus metaphysical assumptions. Okay, build on that a little bit. Now, empiricism is empirical evidence is something that's solid. Like if you're holding something in your hand and it's right there, you have empirical evidence that thing exists because you're looking at it. Right. It's something related to your five senses. Right. Or something absolutely proven by science or whatever. Mm -hmm. A metaphysical assumption would fit into the category of superstition or a story or whatever, something that may sound true, but you really don't have any objective evidence to hang that story on. Okay. So... What's the example that you talk about? Well, uh, one of my favorite authors, which I mention a number of times in my book, Philip Johnson, who wrote a book called Darwin on Trial, Mm -hmm. which is excellent for anyone who would like to know the political wranglings that go on in the scientific world today for for and against Darwinism. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a book that he came out with in 1995 called Reason and the Balance. And in this book, he says that the idea that only purposeless forces played a role in biological development is not an empirical finding. In other words, not based on solid scientific evidence. But it's a metaphysical assumption that has been built into the very definition of science by modern scientists. Right. Yeah, this is a very important point. Yes. So what you're talking about is what's called metaphysical naturalism. So what's that? Yes. What is what is metaphysical naturalism? Well, of course, naturalism in science means that there is a natural explanation for everything that exists. Right. There is no such thing as a supernatural right. explanation for anything. So that now, that in itself uh-huh. is a metaphysical assumption. We don't know scientifically or for certain that there is no supernatural force or a god. That's an assumption. Right. Now, the modern definition of science is uh, naturalism. That's right. 
Yeah, trying to explain everything according to science has a naturalistic explanation. Right. Therefore, anything, if you try to bring any kind of a supernatural explanation into an argument, such as God did this or whatever, that's automatically thrown out because they say, well, that doesn't fit the definition of science. Science is naturalism. Right. They've already tilted the argument in their favor before the argument even begins. Right. Example. And that's what Philip exactly. Johnson points out very clearly in his book, Darwin on Trial, how this goes on all the time, especially in the modern media, where the argument is already tilted in their favor before you even open your mouth. So you, you right. can't possibly win it. It'd be as if you were lived in a country where instead of being, uh, you know, assumed innocent until proven guilty, right. you went to court assumed guilty until proven innocent. Right. Sometimes it's a lot harder to prove that you're innocent than it is the other way around. The burden of proof is on you. I really like those police blotters in the local newspapers where yeah. they list all these things that people have done that, you know, so-and-so did so-and-so on such-and-such such a date. Right. And at the bottom of the column it says, all people in this mentioned in this column are presumed innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> but when but you they've read already this said stuff, they it's did. like, well, obviously they did it. Here it is in the newspaper that they did it. That's right. That's right. All right. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith on WIBG. So wrap up this uh, chapter then and, and tell us what's next in your book. Okay. Uh, to wrap up the idea that we were just talking about, uh, Philip Johnson tells us that we a very important thing that we need to do today is to distinguish between scientific statements and what scientists say. Okay. They are not necessarily the same thing. Just because somebody, on that, yeah. Well, just because somebody is a scientist or has a PhD after their name, right. if they come out in the media and say, for instance, just as Stephen Hawking did recently, if they come out and say, well, I don't believe that the universe had any divine influence in it, that it created itself. Okay. Now, even though he is a scientist, that statement is not a scientific statement. Right. Because he cannot produce the evidence to prove that. Right. That's his opinion. That's his belief. That's the... Uh, it's a metaphysical... Viewpoint he leans toward, but right. in the end, yes, it is a metaphysical assumption. Right. But too many people hearing him say that will automatically assume that that is a scientific statement that's been proven because he's a scientist and he said it. Right. He's a, he's a cosmologist... But he's making a claim that is a philosophical or theological claim. Yeah. So he's actually outside of his area of expertise. Yes. If you wanted to ask uh, an expert, does God exist, you would have to ask a philosopher or a theologian. Well, interesting enough, uh, Stephen Hawking's official title is he's a theoretical mathematician. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that qualify you to know whether God did or didn't create the universe? Right. I have no idea. Right. And I'm not sure he does either. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, except that I but think— But you have to be careful when people say things, because just because someone has some credentials after their name doesn't mean that everything they say is accurate. That's really that's the, the point. point of this chapter. You right. have to distinguish between what is— an empirical scientific statement, and what is a metaphysical assumption. Right. They are two very different things. In future episodes, we'll get on to some more topics in your book about the reliability of Scripture. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we'll look forward to that. And I want to bring—we've got about uh, 10, 15 minutes or so until the end of the, ep the uh, show today. So I brought along a couple of— emails that we got from some atheists, we are making a fairly big impact into the atheist worldview and, and world. We're, we've got a debate with two atheists that do a podcast that's going to be coming up in December. You know, the podcasts now are, are hitting about 3,200 hits on the popular ones, so so word is getting out there about it, and it's attracting some attention, and we have a couple of emails. This one I'll just give first names. One is from 
I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Jussie, maybe, or Juicy, or maybe even the J might be silent. I'm not sure. And another one from a doctor. We'll just go with, we'll just call him Dr. Prescott. But I thought I'd go over some of these because I think they're very interesting. They're kind of typical things that you would hear from an atheist. Um, the doctor, I think, actually goes into a little bit more in-depth about archaeology, which I'm very familiar with the arguments that he's giving, so we'll, we'll get into that. But this is what Jesse had to say. Hi, I listened to four episodes of your podcast. One of them was The Absurdity of Atheism. I didn't find your show very challenging, not for me as an atheist, or even to you as defending your position as a theist. I'm not sure why you attack atheism for, from so strange an angle. Maybe you don't really know about atheism. All right, well, I think we'll just pause and comment as we, as we go along. I know for myself, I was an atheist, was uh, switched back and forth between agnosticism and atheism. I was going to say you just mentioned that a little while ago, that yeah. you were an atheist at one point. So, so I think I'm a little familiar <coughs> with it, and, and Mike, of course, uh, was an atheist for much of his life. I don't know. Really? I didn't know that either. Yeah, yeah, Wow, that's, true. that's interesting. I don't know about your background, Kirk. Basically, I grew up without any religious training at all, so I I don't know. I guess I'd have to call myself an ignorant. <laughs> okay, so or at least uh, my were you agnostic. My, you my were... father never wanted us to go to church. My brother and my sister and I, so we never did. And I really grew up not knowing much about any religion at all. Okay, and it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, as I explain in my book, where I decided I should probably start looking into some some of this and see if there is anything to it because I was really a babe in the woods about the difference between one religion or another. I didn't know the difference between astrology or Buddhism or Christianity or anything. Right. Okay, so you were, uh, I'd say... I can't say I was an atheist. I, I kind of believe there like was were, something out there somewhere, okay. but didn't know right. anything about it and didn't so you know were you could know anything about it. a mild theist then, it sounds like. Mm, possibly. Yeah. Maybe right. leaning a little into agnosticism. I don't know. <laughs> well, the reason we address this, and we did a whole show on this called The Absurdity of Atheism, is because one of the evidences for any kind of philosophy or worldview is how well does it fit with reality? Mm -hmm. Does it make sense to the way you live your life, to the kind of world that you experience as a person, in communion with other people, in, you know, real-life situations. And one of the things that really shows up is if you're an atheist, a lot of life to you seems absurd. Now, let me refer back to the quote that we gave at the beginning of the show from Marvin Minsky, who talks about the fact that he says, quote, the physical world provides no room for freedom of will. Okay, so he has to deny freedom of will. And this is just one and example. And I would inject that that's another metaphysical assumption on his part. Oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely yes. it is. Yeah. How can is, he prove that statement? No, he, he can't. He can't. So, but, um, uh, but the point is that this then leads to an absurdity in his life. He's going mm -hmm. to continue to live every day as if he does have free will. And yet his whole atheistic philosophy tells him that he doesn't have right. free will. So He's a walking contradiction. Exactly. So that's the kind of, of thing that I think is very strong evidence against atheism itself. It's not the kind of direct evidence that many people think about, and I guess that this, this uh, email writer uh, and listener thinks is appropriate evidence, but in reality it's a kind of deeper evidence about, you know, do your beliefs actually match up to the real world? Mm -hmm. So let's see. So he says, uh, here is a proper definition of atheism. Lack of belief in God or gods. In other words, we do not believe that there is no God. Okay? We just don't have belief. It's absence of belief. Nothing illogical about that. Now, that sounds more like agnosticism exactly. to me than atheism. Yes, it is. It is. He's saying, I don't know whether there is or not, so I don't have any belief in it, but there could be a God. 
I right. just don't know about it. And yet he wants to call himself an atheist. Now, if that really is his view, that he doesn't know, then he is actually an agnostic and not right. an atheist, although he claims he's an atheist. Now, how do we know that that's not the case? Because what's the definition, then, of someone who believes that there is no God? Right? If right. the definition of atheism is a lack of belief, neither believing nor not believing, then what's the definition of having positive belief? I believe that God does not exist. Right. There wouldn't be a definition. There wouldn't be a, a, a term, because the term right. atheism's already been taken. Right. So, you know, now I found this. I, I argue with atheists online a lot and at websites, and one of the reasons they do this is because atheism itself is actually irrational. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show about this concept of a universal negative, mm -hmm. like claiming that there's no evidence. I know that there's no evidence. That is an irrational statement because you'd have to be omniscient to know that. Right. So to claim it as if it's true, as if you actually know it, when you cannot possibly know it, is irrational. So that's You've the irrationality. You've totally closed your mind to the possibility. Which is an irrational thing to do. Right. So atheism itself is truly irrational, truly absurd, because it's illogical, it's irrational. It asserts nope. something that no one could possibly know Right. as if it's true. Okay, so he continues, Then about the absurdity of life without God. What can I say? This is not even evidence for anything. Okay, now we really discussed that a little bit. You know, uh, it's not direct evidence, it's indirect evidence. It's the fact that your worldview doesn't fit with the real world. Right. Yes, we atheists also would like to have almighty justice, heaven, power of prayer, etc., etc. We just can't believe in it because we don't have evidence for it. Let's be adults here. Even if life would feel like cold and dark without afterlife, that doesn't make it true. What's your response to that? Well, that is a true statement yeah. as far as it goes. Right. If there is no afterlife, yes, that would make this life a very cold and dark existence. I can agree with that. Right. So, But how does he know that there isn't an afterlife? <laughs> exactly right. And he, can, he won't know until he gets there. That's really. right. He continues, and let's be honest, it doesn't matter if you are atheist or Christian, there will be moments in life when you stop to think, who am I, what purpose of my life, but do you, I think he's actually, I think that English is the second language for him, There's, there's, and he mentions later in his that he has trouble with English, so right. I, I'm not trying to um, make this sound bad, this is just simply the way that it's actually written. Right. But do you really need higher meaning to your life to be happy? I think most people, when pressed, would say, yes, they have to feel there's some purpose to their life. The people that feel there's no purpose commit suicide because they can't deal with it. Right, and yeah, happiness can there's be There's almost very an instinct for wanting some kind of a meaning in our life to be able to go on. That's right, and, and this is another area where atheism doesn't really seem to fit with human life. No, it we, doesn't work. It doesn't work terribly well. Can you be happy? Um, yes, you can be happy, but happiness is very fleeting, very temporary. I can be happy now, um, but does that mean I ignorance will have Ignorance can a, be bliss. Yeah, exactly. Ignorance can be bliss. <laughs> but how long can you maintain that ignorance? Right. Will and how many people will actually live happy lives? Um, yeah. You know, we're running short on time, but this, uh, you know, I want to bring up a— and I wish I'd have brought the title of the book, but there was a book by a psychologist who examined— the lives of 10 of the world's most famous atheists and compared it to 10 of the world's most famous theists, those mm. who actively um, supported the concept of theism versus those who actively supported the concept of atheism and compared right. their lives. And let me tell you, the 10 most famous atheists were lived very, very unhappy lives. Mm. So uh, if that sampling of 20 people uh, is any evidence, I think the answer is no, you really can't be happy, uh, at least not for uh, your entire life as an atheist. Hmm. So he continues, I think people doesn't normally even think things like, 
that they are happy about friends, love, good friends, good movies, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so again, it's that temporal thing. You know, you can momentarily be happy. You as, can distract yourself and live in ignorance for a while and be right. happy. As long as you're yes. watching a good movie, okay, sure. you feel happy. What happens when you leave the movie theater? Right. And you face the real world again. Right, or what happens when you turn the TV off or when right. your friends leave or whatever. Right. And he says, it continues, and again, even if you are sad and anxious between, because lack of meaning in life, it doesn't mean that there must be one. Okay, again, well, a, that's a true statement. True as far as it goes, again. But it does make one wonder in why isn't there, if we're so concerned as human beings about the meaning of life, then why isn't there a meaning of life? An example is, let's say that you were, once you were born, you were born fully conscious, and you recognize you would soon become hungry. All right, so you recognize, hey, I'm alive now, I've just come into this world, and I notice this gnawing in my stomach. I'm going to give it the name hunger. Okay, so I'm hungry for something. What is it? Wouldn't that itself be evidence that in this world in which we're living, there is something called food? Yes. I happen to be You're hungry. hungry for something. I'm hungry for something, right? Right. What is it? If I lived in a world in which there was no food, I would not become hungry. Right. We live in a world where people know that they need meaning in their life. They need purpose in their life. They seem to be compelled to believe that there is purpose and meaning in their life. Why is that? Isn't the rational way to assume that it's because there actually is meaning in life? It's, it almost seems like if evolution were true and there really wasn't a rational purpose to life, that everyone would be satisfied with whatever they have. That's no matter right. how little or how hard their life is, we would just say, well, that's the way it is. That's and right. No one would be ever, content with it. That's right. It's, There's nothing else. That's right. It'd be like being a fish. Does a fish know that he's wet? No. No, he doesn't, because that's his life. That's all he knows. So right. that's all we would know. We would just know, like he said, good food, good movies, and friends, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all there would be. We'd never wonder about purpose or meaning in life unless there really was purpose and meaning, true right. purpose and meaning to our lives. Makes sense to me. So, um, well, he goes on. We only got one page into this. Uh, he goes on for uh, another page and a half, and uh, I will type up a response to him and get that out to him uh, if you'd like to email us if you have questions if you're an atheist or you are a Christian who has questions about the Christian faith and the evidence for it you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com that's evidence the number four faith.com join us again next week Sunday at 4 p.m. and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.